All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Kente Corner, your favorite Georgetown Hoyas basketball podcast. I'm Bobby Bancroft, and it's another bracket edition with the sadness and the madness. And who else would I be doing this with than Howie Wachtel and John Hawks? What's up, guys? What's up, Bobby? Hey, man. It's a, it's it's what we're, we're we're giving it to the people, but it's also it's helping me a little bit. I think, particularly talking to you guys, because when I go over it before we con- come on here, a lot of the a lot of the bad memories come through. But you guys usually do a pretty good job of of keeping me of keeping me in check. Um, just so we're just so we're clear, Bobby. So Howie is madness, and I'm sadness, right? If we're like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I don't know. We'll have to maybe see what the see what the people that are listening come up with. See what see who they think is what. I think it's fair to say that in the middle of a global pandemic pandemic, there's no better way to get through the really tough days and nights than to rem- reminisce about all the devastating and brutal losses that your favorite basketball team went through. Yeah. Yeah. Even even some of the wins are tough when you look at how the season <laughs> unfolded. But anyway, um, Howie, I say we start off with, we'll go down the list, and this is one of the more interesting matchups for me. I'll say who it is, and you can you can kind of let the people know about it since this is your, 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 your final brackets. But we got a six seed in the sadness, Radford beating Georgetown in 2015. That's the season opener. It's a double overtime. It was showing us what was to come. And you got the 11 seed Villanova just mauling Georgetown in the season finale in 2017. Yeah, so this is um, just to give you a sense of where we are in the bracket. So this is we released the the last matchups uh, in the Madness and Sadness brackets, and so we're going to be moving on to the round of 32 in each bracket uh, in the rest of this week. This particular matchup, I, I think, is the most intriguing matchup. Of, of any of the matchups in the brackets because it represents it's the Radford loss, which was uh, sort of some warning signs for the, in, in the last two years of the JT three era, kind of the beginning of the end. Uh, and then the loss to Villanova at the end of 2017, which for JT three was kind of the end of the end. Uh, the, the Radford loss in some respects was, was not surprising because Georgetown had lost to, you know, a number of foes that were smaller and, and not well-known uh, usually in the NCAA tournament, but just the way it happened and when it happened was, was pretty shocking. So in some respects, you know, losing, losing to Radford was a big deal. We lost this game by, by two points. Radford wasn't very good. Radford did not really have a good season that year it was also the first game of the season for us in a year that was supposed to be you know a pretty decent year i think at the beginning of 2015 no one really expected that you know especially coming off a season in which we finished second place in the biggies conference we were four seed in the tournament uh had a decent chance to go to the sweet 16 no one really expected us to come out and lose to a team like radford we still had guys like LJ Peak and Isaac Copeland, and we expect to be pretty good that season. So losing to a team like Radford, I think, was, you know, obviously was bad in and of itself. Losing this, the first game of the season, playing at home, was also terrible. 
But then the way we lost was really the icing on the cake here. Because not only was this a loss to a bad team, and not only was this a loss during the first game of the season at home, not only was it our first loss of the season, but we also lost in brutal fashion. This game went into double overtime. We had a chance to end this game at the end of regulation, but LJ Peak missed a, missed a free throw. And we ended up losing on a Rashun Davis three that was probably five feet behind the line with one and a half seconds to go in double overtime. So it was just a devastating way to start the season for, for Georgetown. And, and, and this is just one of those losses, I think, that I'll never forget. And then going up against uh, the loss to Villanova, March 4th, 2017, this was JT3's last game uh, coaching Georgetown during the regular season. And this game, it wasn't a close game. No one expected us to win this game. We weren't playing for anything. This is this is arguably, uh, we've we've talked about this before, but I think this is arguably the the one game during the JT3 era that that really didn't count for anything. We were really playing for nothing, and we got blown out from start to finish. The crowd was depressed throughout the game. People sort of realized that this might be the end for JT3, and it kind of represented how far we had fallen as as a program. So uh, the Radford loss was was brutal but it was sort of the beginning of the end of the JT3 era. The Villanova loss was was just sort of expected uh, and, and marked the end of the JT3 era. What do you want to add, John? <laughs> oh, what do I want to add? My gosh. Um, this is, I think we talked about the Arkansas State and the ODU matchup in the last pod, and I said that was like the most like, creative or one of my favorites in the bracket. This one, this is the best matchup in either bracket. I'm going to be honest. Because these are, gosh, in a cynical bracket, these are some games. Like, I think thinking back over 20 years of watching Georgetown, if you think about the kind of games where you just feel, like, angry and disgusting and demoralized leaving the arena, these two games are up there for different reasons, believe me. But, my gosh, like – the Villanova, this the Villanova game is another one that's underseated. That's like for me, that's like a five sixty minimum. Um, the Radford game's underseated too. I was actually surprised it wasn't like a top four seed or so. I was kind of waiting for it the whole time to come up. Um, it's a, it's a competitive field. <laughs> I know, man, man. Of course, of course, for Georgetown, yeah, the six eleven game would be competitive. Um, the Radford game. Um, did I tell it? So first of all, actually, before we start. Um, did you guys vote on this one yet? I did. So what did I, you, which team did you pick? I, I, I voted for Radford and, okay. and, and for, and for me, it just comes down to, again, it's, it's the way you kind of, it's the way you feel after these losses. I don't think we ever expected to beat Villanova in that game. And the game was basically meaningless. The only thing we had left was one game in the Big East tournament that we were inevitably going to lose. We were playing for nothing. But losing that first game to Radford, beginning of the season, a lot of optimism, and the way we lost, I felt much worse after that loss than I did against, you know, when we lost to Villanova. I, I didn't even go to the Villanova game because I just said, what's the point? It's a meaningless game. <laughs> um, but I was, at the, I was at the Radford game, and I walked all the way home because I was devastated. <laughs> Well, there you go. That's the sign of a good one. 
Uh, Bobby, what did you vote for? It's tough. Um, and after you talk a little bit, I'll give my my little notes on on each of these terrible experiences. But I went Radford as get. I went I went Radford as well, just because they were coming off an NCAA tournament season. Yeah, they lost a lot, but there was this expectation that the freshmen were going to slide on and provide a lot of what was missing with Jabril and, you know, Josh Smith and who else is part of that class Hopkins. And the freshmen were supposed to be really good, right? I think Marcus Derrickson probably was hurt most of the year and didn't play very well. And, you know, he did start, but those really didn't, he didn't put up a whole lot. And, you know, you didn't really know what you had with Bradley Hayes. He kind of came out of nowhere to make sure that, they didn't lose to Eastern Washington, you know, two games prior when everyone got in foul trouble. But there was one part of the Villanova game, and I'll just say it now instead of going back later, that Georgetown kind of shined a light on what was going on, even though the drum was beating louder. They ended up on Scott Van Pelt's whatever it is he does at the end of his broadcast. I know he's local, yeah. but Georgetown stepped in during the press conferences says there was going to be no talk of JT3's job. And it kind of just really ramped it up, in my opinion. So it's a really tough matchup, but I think I think it's Radford. So I was actually I didn't look this up before I got on the the pod, but I was wondering chronologically when the the infamous Scott Van Pelt galoof, like one good minute or one last thing was. It was after this because Max Carey. Okay. So Ben Ben asked a question about just you know, hey, look, this is you know this is this is bad things are going bad how do you put it because i think they had just been up in i think they had just been up at st john's yes and it was getting pretty loud because there's a big new york you know how we would know there's a big new york contingent and so they came home and they try to pretend like it was business as normal and ben asked the question and mech stepped in and said look and the question could have been easily answered with i don't focus on that um, I'm just trying to win games. That's all he had to say. It's all G- and instead, Mech stepped in, took a bullet for the Hoyas, and then it ended up on Scott Van Pelt's, you know, and then like the USA Today picked it up. It, it became a big story. Yep. It was the, it was keep it to game related questions. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the phrase. I have keep it to game related questions in my notes, man. This is the, the Nova game. I'll, I'll add this also. How can you not? The Nova game was the loud salsa music game too which is ju- just incredible um, that this it was it's the most Georgetown thing ever, right? That they decided that to try to prevent the booing and fire JT3 chants from drowning things out at the end of the game, they would just type in, just blast in some salsa music. I, I'm nothing against salsa music. I'm not much of a dancer, but um, it's just a perfectly Georgetown thing because, okay, if you're going to do that, Fine. Like if you decide, like, look, it's, it's going to get kind of awkward. It's the last game. We don't want it to be a bad situation for a coach. We're trying to let down gently. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a ton of things that you can pipe in if you're determined to pipe in music that are less incongruous than salsa music at the end of a basketball game. And the worst part is, at some point, like the next season, at a random timeout, they played the same salsa music. So it's sitting there on the track somewhere at Cap yeah. One Arena. It's bizarre. It's such a perfectly Georgetown thing to do to like go through all the trouble of thinking through how to like, like manage and be like really like Kremlin like with how they're going to protect the leader. 
and then do such a hand-handed job of executing it. It's such a perfect metaphor for Georgetown basketball in March of 2017. In the end, I did vote for the Nova game. There are no wrong answers in this bracket, in this matchup. Actually, they're probably both wrong answers if we're being serious with ourselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Radford game, I, I looked at, I was, I was curious whether this was like in the, in the annals of like bad teams that Georgetown has lost to during the period of this bracket, was this one the worst? So I tried to like, I, I kind of went back through the mental Rolodex and picked all the like bad losses I remember and, and kind of checked through all the Ken Palm rankings. I think it might be and Northeastern. Unless I missed something, this is the worst one, Radford. Oh, really? Okay. Radford ended the year. Radford's Ken Palm for the end of that year is 222. Uh, Northeastern's was 203 for that year. I'm close. Um, you've got, you've got um, a couple DePaul teams that were both 183. Um, the, win, the almost winless in the Big East 2006 USF Bulls were 171. So that's kind of the area you're working in. But, yeah, this was the worst one. Um, yeah, not good. I know, I know, I know how he says that the, the Nova game was like the first time that like we went to a game that was completely meaningless. I would argue during that season, pretty much everything after say the UNC Asheville game was meaningless. I think that might've been the year they had like a decent Big East record at some point, but pretty much everything after that game, completely meaningless. <laughs> if your non-conference resume includes those losses, you're not going anywhere. No, but would, at one point they, they were 14 and 11. They were seven and five. They had good numbers because the schedule was decent. So the season probably really derails, and we'll talk about it later. Is the uh... it was the season derailed a week earlier when we lost to DePaul at home. Uh, but but yeah, I it was after that that the rest of the season really didn't didn't matter. But but I really can't. It's hard for me to point to a single game in the JT3 era that mattered less than this one. And I get that Georgetown and Villanova, anytime they play, it matters. But this game really, it, it, and again, we can talk about this later, but, you know, comparing the, you know, when, when we're good, we're, we, we've sort of been the, the beast of the conference. And, and when, we bat, when we're bad, we've been pretty much the way we've been the last, the last few years. But we would compare ourselves to to Villanova, and when you when you sort of juxtapose the the way we played against Villanova on this day with the loss we had at home to DePaul, kind of the week before or ten days before, it really just put an exclamation point on the fact that we were closer to DePaul and the bottom of the conference than we were to Villanova and the top of the conference, and that that was pretty bad. Yeah, yeah, no, this is a really competitive matchup. Uh, real quick, I was flipping the 2017 and 16 seasons when I said their record, but uh, it kind of all holds. They were, yeah, their season was kind of meaningless for a long, a long stretch here. Um, the only thing I would say is, in sitting there and not believing the Radford game was happening the way it was, Georgetown being up eight in the second, and then they were down five. They actually had to come back to force overtime, which, yeah. you know, and if you can remember going back to JT3's first season, and I'll apologize, I'm sure this isn't on the bracket, it's a, it's a meaningless game, but they were in real trouble against Norfolk State. I think Ashante Cook hit a couple crazy threes, and they won that game. 
I remember thinking like, you know, maybe this can be a later career Norfolk State game where you survive disaster. And yeah. then just just watching it unfold, they just they just couldn't they just couldn't guard guards. And it, you know, and this like you said, this was a team that went nine and nine in the big south. Yeah, not, not a good team. Actually, on on the subject of on the subject of small guards too, this game had legs too in other parts of Georgetown's program because this was right around the time I'm going to forget the timeline, but it's right around this area when Georgetown fans got really hot and heavy when we were recruiting Chris Likes, and the whole like you know the whole thing with Chris Likes, who by the way like turned out to be a perfectly great player at Miami. Um, but the whole thing with Chris Likes was people, Georgetown fans really liked him because he was small. And the thought was, oh, we keep getting beat by guards who happen to be short. Yeah. Chris Likes will be the perfect thing for Georgetown. And he may have been a great fit for Georgetown. That was the thing that they were trying to get trending or like getting in the Google like algorithm. But like when, 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 a, when, a, when a low major beats you and it's so traumatic that it like affects your perception of recruiting. Like, yeah, they got us. I mean, they look. They made Rashawn Davis look like an NBA player. Um, although, you know, Bradley Hayes, who kind of you know didn't play forever, saved them in the NCAA tournament. Like I said, he's got 19 and 12 this game. At the end of the second overtime, when they are winning, you get a bad, a bad three point shot by Peak, who at that point was not a good three point shooter yet. Instead of trying to get something with Hayes, I remember thinking it was crazy that it happened. That's something in these games that we're going to talk about later. A lot of just really bad final threes. By so I actually so apropos of this, since I watched the like I, I, I watched the found footage version of the you know overtimes of the Radford Georgetown game on YouTube this afternoon. Um, Georgetown ran the same play on their final possession of both overtimes. Um, in both cases, hitting a three would have essentially won the game. Um, That's very Ashrekian. Well, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad play. It was essentially a drive and kick play to yeah. the corner nearest, you know, opposite the, the home bench. LJ Peak and Isaac Copeland, I'm going to be honest, they had wide open three pointers both times. Um, Peaks, I think, was, was it Peaks or Copeland? I think it was Copeland's was closer to going in. Peaks was like nowhere close, but Peaks, yeah, it was yeah. Be- between that and you know LJ missing the free throw at the end of regulation, they had three legitimate chances, one in each of the three you know end games to to put that game away, and they didn't do it. Radford actually kind of gave the game away in regulation too, but you know it would have you know maybe. You know, for a little while, that would have been a forgettable game because it's not like it's the first time Georgetown's kind of messed around and only narrowly beat a, a low major. Shoot, they were down 18 to Mount St. Mary's this year. But, man, did they, did they gag that one? So This was, this was also the, the first time, I think, that we really saw how terrible our, our perimeter defense was, our foul rate in our perimeter defense. And in this case, I mean, Radford hit 10 threes against us. And not only did hmm. they hit 10 threes, they hit two threes, I think, in the last two minutes of regulation to, to kind of claw back and, uh, and take the lead. And then it, it kind of the way this game ended in double overtime, they hit their, Radford's last three baskets in double overtime in the last two minutes of this game were all threes. So it, it capped off by the Rashawn Davis ridiculous deep three uh, with with under three seconds to go to to win the game by two points, 
so the fact that they hit three ridiculous threes in the last two minutes of double overtime is really what what sticks with me. I think we, we've covered this point a little bit already, but this was a Georgetown team that was supposed to be decent. Um, I yeah. had to look up. Like, look at the roster. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I know they lost, you know, this is, this is the first year after, you know, the end of the Jabril, Hop, the Jabril and Hopkins, uh, Josh Smith was in there, Aaron Bone was in there. It was the end of the 2002 class that, you know, had lost for various reasons, also Whittington and Tyler Adams and, and Otto. But um, the, the lineup they're rolling out there at the, the start this game is, you know, LJ, DSR, Isaac Copeland, Marcus Erickson, who's probably filling in for Paul White, who was hurt, and, and Bradley Hayes. It's not a terrible lineup. Um, but this team, I, I looked up the preseason biggies poll, they're picked second in the, in the preseason poll. Um, and you know, Villanova gets the other nine first place votes. Georgetown gets the, the 10th preseason vote. So, you know, thanks Jay Wright. Um, but they got almost the maximum amount of points you would get if every other coach had picked you second. This is a team that was near unanimously picked to finish second in the Big East. I think it's, I think they were probably receiving votes in the polls. I don't think they were ranked, but a pretty, pretty drastic fall to go from, Hey, maybe competitive for a Big East title to, I mean, I know in the moment you kind of freak out, but I was leaving that game thinking, Holy crap, this entire season is, is completely effed. Yeah, no, you're right. And I know um, Ben and Andrew and I talked the other day about McClung with Ben's article and, I brought up the fact that sort of DSR's senior season was supposed, you know, was kind of a, you know, let's just let, let's just let him play point guard. That's, that's kind of what is best for him. And he's a good enough player. And JT three was, you know, had no problem trying to force non point guards to be a point guard. Cause he'd like to believe that there weren't positions, right. It was positionless basketball. So, you know, we saw that was a problem having DSR be your point guard, but you're bringing back someone who I'm sure I don't have it in front of me. I'm sure DSR was a preseason, all first team league guy. Right. Yep. And then, well, you know, actually, well, actually with DSR, this was, the, this was his last, this was his fourth year at Georgetown, right? Yeah. In the off right. season, in, in, at the end of the previous season, did he not basically declare and leave? And then like, it was actually kind of surprising that he came back. Right. And that's he why did. everyone's, it was like, well, look, you come back, we're going to, we're going to feature you as a point guard. That's, that, that's your best shot at playing in the NBA. On the and subject of positionless were... basketball and not, you know, having your players fit like good strategy, watch Bradley Hayes try to hard hedge in this game. Yeah. I mean, people were rejoicing when we found out that he was miraculously coming back. We thought he was gone. And when he announced he was coming back, all of a sudden we had the best player in our team returning and, all of a sudden it looked like instead of finishing somewhere in the middle of the pack, we might have a chance to win the conference. Well, look at, I mean, imagine if he didn't come back, right? (laughs) I mean, you know, obviously the season didn't end very well, but if he hadn't played that 15 and 18 record, I think would look more like, I don't know, 11 wins. It's hard. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, keep in mind also, like our other point guard was Trey Campbell. Trey was dealing with his own uh, health right. issues throughout right. that season. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also what another thing not to lose sight of in this game was we were up eight against Radford with 10 minutes to go. JT3 yeah. teams tend to not blow leads like that, especially 
uh, late in this late in the second half. And that was also our first glimpse at Jesse Govan, who I remember when he hit a three. This was his, his first game, and 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 you're like, wow, we have we have the big man who's pretty skilled and can hit threes. That's that's different than Josh Smith. <laughs> yeah, it just uh, this team, what this group wasn't talented enough to basically have a season where you got nothing out of Paul White and Marcus Derrickson was hurt, right? That just, and you know, it just, that was a killer because those two recruiting classes are pretty good on paper and they turned out to be bad on the court. But I will say this, my last parting shot for this, this game and the fact that I did not get a parking pass at Maryland, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going, (laughs) I'm not going. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no thanks college park well, on a on a on a tuesday no parking yeah. pass. i don't think so yeah i, I was there i regret that one too oh, man. anyway should we keep it moving yeah my we should thing on, my last thing on the radford game uh, i can't remember if i told you guys this story separately or if I, I alluded to it on the podcast last week but um one of my friends who we sit with in our section this was the game where he brought his then girlfriend to a game for the first time. I, I can't feel like this happens in every game you're at. No, well, I'm, a lot of my friends have girlfriends and fiancés and are married. And then eventually they come to games. But this particular one, yes, it was my friend Matt. He brought his, his girlfriend to the game. I can't remember how long they'd been together. Um, but I remember thinking, my gosh, like, what a horrific thing to take somebody and subject them to. Um, so I, asked, I texted Matt because I knew we were doing this tonight. I said, hey, I'm interested in her thoughts looking back on that game and the text that he sent me back was what she told him was she remembers from this game was i'm quoting you told me this team was bad and that double overtimes never happened so, <laughs> that doesn't summarize yeah. bradford georgetown and that entire season what does you want to talk about loud salsa music now no no we are going yeah, to talk like, about some oh good... i want to talk about this game a little more though no, we've just spent an hour on the Radford game. We can't. No, I want to talk about the Radford. Game. The Radford loss was the Radford loss was worse. It signified the end of the season before the season had even started. Whereas <laughs> at least the Villanova loss was the end of the season that was already over. <laughs> so, but, but what I want to say about the Villanova game, because I, I, I voted for the Villanova game, by the way. There, I guess it's no wrong answers here, but I voted for the Villanova game. I wanted to go back and see. I remember I tweeted something about the game after I left it. I, I, I went and looked it up. Here's what I read about the Villanova game. 17 years, worst, most bizarre experience I've ever had at a GU game. Crowd toxic beyond belief. I'm at a complete loss. It is, hey, at least there was 15,000 of them. You know, it's the second highest attendance in the new Big East era. <laughs> of course it is. Um, why? I don't know. Um, but, um, yeah, it's Villanova <laughs> in their post-national title year, I guess. Um, aside from FGCU, which is a little bit different because of the stakes of that game and the, the different venue, and it was a narrower slice of Georgetown fans, this was the worst, like, nastiest, angriest crowd. And it's not even close um, that I've ever been a part of. Like, this was fans, like, openly arguing and, like, shouting and cursing at each other during the game. Like, we know all this stuff with, like, you know, fire JT3 and fire Thompson chance. Like, just thinking about this game during the course of the day, like, you peel away all the onions, like, oh, crap, that happened at the game, right? Like, keep it to game-related questions. This was the game where, like, supposedly Tyler Crawford accosted a student, allegedly, right? You know, 
weird stuff happened at that game. Um, it was, it was, it was pretty horrific. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't really, the one thing, one other thing I will say um, that may have made a difference for how bad it was at the end of the game, because the crowd was really super angry. I think everybody knew it was going this direction, right? It was going to probably end in a loss and it was going to be awkward and there were going to be fire Thompson chants and stuff. I think if the game been a blowout from start to end, it would have just kind of like the, all the energy and the pressure built up would have just kind of like released itself over the course of 40 minutes. The reality was this game was a five minute game with 11 minutes left. So it was still close enough where nobody, everybody was kind of still sitting around and kind of nervously twiddling their thumbs. And then Villanova went on a run and that like with like eight minutes to go is when it finally started. Um, I can't imagine what it's like going minus 21 over the final minutes of the game to end a season. Huh? I wonder what that's like. Hmm. Yeah, but this was this was truly horrific. Um, by the way, Bobby, I really I, I don't appreciate your negative comments about my Purnell for Georgetown sign. Just seems like you're really grasping for artifacts, if homemade. <laughs> if it homemade... Was, it, it, I knew we were going to talk about this game. That that Purnell for Georgetown sign survived that game. That was the game where they were confiscating signs. Oh. I think they might have started start confiscating signs before that, um, but I think I think because I was because I and a few friends of ours were like probably determined to be kind of jerks about this, we decided to bring some signs to the game. Um, but they were being checked by security, so my wife actually came up with the like brilliant plan to evade Capital One security, which was just like hold one sign on top of the other, and they only look at the innocuous sign, and so that's security for you. Congrats, Cap One. Anyway, um, yeah, one of our signs got confiscated, but Purnell for Georgetown somehow escapes the censors, and so I still have the stupid thing. So, yeah. And I mean, we honestly, all know about it now. Honestly, you know, he's, I think he's sitting down in Florida somewhere. Like, he could do worse for an assistant coach, right? Don't, don't challenge them. Um, I heard he was on Cameo, actually. So if anybody wants to give me a gift for my birthday, just say it. Okay. Um, going to the good bracket. Yeah. Howie, we've we've got we've got actually good games to talk about. So another six eleven matchup: Georgetown winning at Connecticut in a two thousand eight game. That was really the two thousand nine season kind of came out of nowhere and it was maybe the high point but it was a great opening conference win matched up against 11 seed georgetown winning at louisville also a pre-new year's day game in the conference this is december 28 2011 what do you think first of all i'm just amazed that we just talked about that villanova game and didn't even talk about tremont waters at all but <laughs> let's keep it moving about what he's in my notes he's in my notes tr- it was a week tr- later, tr- yeah, everybody thought Tremont Waters was considering leaving, and and this was you know eventually the icing on the cake is when he decommitted. Anyway, let's 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 move along. That both of those games were terrible, but Radford was worse. So <laughs> let's talk about him forever. <laughs> no this, wrong answer. Six, six except that your answer was wrong. This six versus eleven matchup here. So these are uh, these are different teams. This is a two thousand eight. Uh, this is an oh eight oh nine season versus. 2011-12 season, uh, but they were similar results uh, against the top team in the Big East 
and uh, and they were on the road at the start of Big East play. So the first is this Georgetown winning at Connecticut. This Connecticut was number two in the country. Georgetown was number 11 in the country. This was we talked a lot about that infamous 08-09 season where we had you know we we seemed to beat the best teams in the country, but still couldn't get any con- any consistency or rhythm during the season, so we didn't even make the tournament. But this win at Connecticut was unbelievable. And you talked about footage that's still available on YouTube. Just look up this Georgetown-Connecticut matchup, December 29th, 2008. Watch the first half of this game. It's unbelievable. Uh, this was really the, the first time we got to see Greg Monroe for who Greg Monroe could be. This was his freshman year. And he, he put on a show. Uh, Austin Freeman was incredible with his shooting and his body control. Chris Wright was great facilitating the basketball. And arguably the player of the game might have been Dewan Summers, who was hitting shots from all over the court and played pretty good defense. That team boggles the mind. Uh, it was really good. That win was really one of the – I mean, it's, it's the same year. We also had a win in the non-conference against Memphis, but that win at UConn, I think, was just uh, – was, was memorable. Compare that to our win against Louisville at Louisville. I think Patina was wearing his, his white suit that day, and uh, this was also – uh, a pretty shocking win. So in, in that Connecticut game, we were number 11. UConn was number two. This game, we were number 12, and Louisville was number four, and we beat them at their place. Markel Starks had a big game, 16 points in the second half. This was uh, the beginning of Otto Porter's career. Uh, he hit a big, uh, a few big shots down the stretch, and it, Louisville had a 20-game home winning streak, and, and we beat them, and that was their first loss of the season. These were both very, very similar wins. You could argue that this is closer to an 8-9 matchup instead of a 6 versus 11, but both equally impressive in my view. There, um, I, like, I, like the synerg- I like the synergy of both of them, you know, both of the late December games being together. Um, they are both really good wins. Um, you should check out if you can't YouTube it. Um, UConn, like a, a UConn fan site somewhere, has a really good archive of full UConn games, and it's basically everything, wins and losses. So you can find this game there. There's some good highlight clips of it um, on YouTube. And if you watch just like the, the the first, even like five minutes, I was watching the first five minutes. I, I kind of ticked off stat lines just for Greg Monroe. By the way, we start this game out on a 15 to one run against I think the number two team in the country on the road. Um, in the first five minutes of this game, Greg Monroe has probably four assists. I think he might have had all of his assists in the first five minutes. He has four assists. He has two clear steals and at least one other pass he knocks away for somebody else to get. Um, he has a breakaway layup, and he hits a three-pointer. Basically, all 15 of the first 15 points we make are accounted for by Greg Monroe, pretty much. Um, it is unreal. Um, I was going to raise if you know, it's probably kind of almost a 1A and 1B for, for Greg and Jeff Green. Who was the most ideally suited player for JT3's offense? I know Jeff, Jeff got to play a lot of four, but as a, you know, a Princeton five, is Greg Monroe not just a perfect player for that system? And he was doing all of the stuff you want from somebody in that first five minutes. Yeah, 
I, I mean, it's obviously hard to argue, uh, you know, honorable mention for Henry Sims's senior year, I guess. Right. But yeah. those, you know, you're, you're probably right, Bobby. And I think one of my pet theories is that you can kind of chart the decline of Georgetown's program over the years through like the diminishing returns of who was playing center, at least on the like nominally on the roster, who was at the five. I mean, you've got Roy Hibbert and then Greg Roy Hibbert is a tremendous college center. Probably not the most ideal for a Princeton offense, but we certainly made it work. And he's playing next to Jeff Green, who is perfect for it. Um, then you have Greg Monroe, maybe the platonic ideal of a Princeton five. Henry Sims had a good senior year. I would agree. Then you get into like, you know, Hopkins slash Lubick, neither of whom really is suited for it. Josh Smith. Well, don't forget about it. You still had Otto Porter on those teams, though. Right. But I mean, I think, you know, he seems to be focused on the point center. Yeah, the point center, somebody who can, you know, there, one of the, you know, Greg Monroe's three at the beginning of the UConn game, he gets the ball out at the perimeter. And I think it's, I think is it still the beat at that point, or is it somebody else playing yeah. center for UConn? It's the beat. Is It's still the beat. You can tell, even though he's given up a three pointer to Roy Hibbert the previous year, he's not willing to go out there, you know, to get at Greg Monroe. He's still trying to sag, but Greg Monroe just raises up and hits the three, and he shot plenty of threes that year. Years go on, Henry Sims tried some, you know, long twos. But once you get into, like, the Hopkins, Smith, Lubick, you know, Hayes era, you're still running an offense that requires a center to be out there to facilitate things, and you're just – you're never going to have anybody who's going to seriously go out and challenge that. It just bogs the whole offense down. And Greg Monroe, again, he has two or three steals in the first five minutes of this game because he's so nimble, and he has one that he picks a guy near half court. Um I think it's fair to say Georgetown struggled in the latter JT three years defensively, and part of it was because they were still trying to play defense virtually the same way they had during the Greg Monroe years. A lot of high hedging, a lot of you know centers being out far from the basket, trying to you know hedge and recover. Hey, and the high you know, hedge has not Monroe. gone away with JT three. By the way, with Greg Monroe, you cannot do that with pretty much every center we've had since 2013. It just sort of makes you realize, like, yes, at one point, this Princeton offense was perfect for the personnel that we had. And somewhere along the line, you know, we just we strayed away from it for whatever reason, you know, fitting personnel to system and the system never really caught up. Yeah, um, yeah. I know we never do side tangents, you know, um, but I would agree that recruiting to the system is something that he should have done a better job, even going back to Vernon Macklin, right? Like he didn't make sense for that position um, all the way to, you know, Bradley Hayes and there's people in between, but yes, I would absolutely agree that, you know, recruiting guys that made no sense in that offense just really hurt the program. Yeah. I, I, I mean, since we're going off on a tangent here, so I think that not getting the right, big men to fit our offense was certainly one of the reasons for our lack of success in the later JT three years. I still think the number one reason was not having a point guard. Uh, if you look at JT three's teams with quality point guards versus without them, there's a, there's a pretty big difference there. And in my view, we really only had three true point guards or three and a half point guards during that that entire stretch. And at the end of the day, if you don't have when the, you know, with our motion offense, you're looking for the other team to make mistakes. And when it comes down to it, if the other team doesn't make a mistake and you need your point guard to break down a defense, 
we didn't always have a guy who could do that. And throughout the JT three years, the, you had Chris Wright, Markel Starks were true point guards. John Wallace, as great as he was, was not a true point guard, but the combination of Wallace and Sapp proved to be pretty effective. Outside of those guys, tough, yeah. tough to find one. And I think that the two points are related because you can sort of get by without having true point guards, like you're saying, if you have a true point forward or a point center, right? But when you have neither, which yep. is what sort of happened at the end, you're in real trouble. Yeah. I mean, the, the last time we had a, you know, a, a truly good point guard was Markel Starks. He graduated in 2014. Yeah. Uh, and we, we really did not have a point guard at that level until James Akinjo. And we can talk about him later. I believe it's on the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Coming up next. <laughs> Did we have things to about, cry about? Have we, so about have we picked who's, who's, who's winning this game? I, I, I like this so, UConn game. As much as I love yeah. the 2011-12 team, this UConn game was just so well played. It's also, if you're looking for, you know, if you come up with your list of five or seven games that truly exemplify what it was like to watch, you know, a JT3 coached offense in, you know, during some of the better wins or the, you know, the, the heyday of, of his tenure, this has to be on that list. And for me personally, it was the last game before uh, I got married. And so having this win right before I get married uh, was pretty fantastic. And I was in a great mood and I will say that after my wedding, the next two games were we got punished at home by Pittsburgh, and then we lost a very close one at Notre Dame. So uh, it was much better, you know, before the vows. Well, there you go. You know, my, my five-year wedding anniversary is next week, actually, and uh, Georgetown has not made the NCAA tournament since I got married. It's not surprising at all. There you go. So, um, so I guess I guess that tells it. I'm sadness. Yeah, um, I think it's you know it's hard for me to look at. So when you look at the games and you see the numbers behind, you know what year it happened in, you want to gravitate towards that Louisville win because obviously it meant more because the season was actually a success. Mm-hmm. But yeah, after that game, you know they'd already beaten, they'd already just drubbed Maryland in another game that we talked about last week or the week before. That was another perfect example of when the Princeton is running, the Princeton is running and they'd beaten Memphis in overtime at home. And you're just like, Hey, look, I know that some guys transferred and you know, the team's different, but Monroe is just, you know, good luck guarding him big East. And you know, with this offense, like Georgetown's fine. And so, yeah, yeah, it's definitely that win at the moment was a huge win the season really frustrating but a season i think a lot of us would take at the moment <laughs> i've always wondered if people think you know i guess we'll never know you know there's all the talk about what happened in the locker room after the duke game that year right you know, we'll never know what really went down on that roster and, and maybe some of it was just you know this was a team that was overhauling a big part of the roster right the class of 05 you know the wallace crawford patrick ewing jr hibbert class had just left and it's hard in those transition years sometimes but um I've always been kind of my pet theory, like that this team, the 09 team is really underrated. Um, 
And to be honest, kind of my hot take on Georgetown basketball, the 08 team the year before, kind of overrated. And the thing I'll say to point this out is the 09 team during the, during the season, they, they beat four teams that were ranked at the time. They were four and seven during the regular season against ranked teams. So they played 11 games during the regular season against ranked teams. Do you know, in 2008, do you know what was the first win in the regular season Georgetown had over a ranked opponent? Like what, you know, if I had known this was going to be on here, I've got a really handy-dandy spreadsheet, but I don't have it in front of me. Um, I'm going to say Syracuse. No. No, they it was Syracuse wasn't ranked. First first one, as far as I know, unless unless you know John Reagan's side is off on the rankings thing, and I'm pretty sure they're not. Because Syracuse, I think, was an NIT team in 08. Um first win over a ranked team that year was the second to last game of the regular season. They won two games over ranked teams that year. They were the last two games of the regular season. Um so I think like, part of it was Marquette or Villanova. It was Marquette, the second to last game, which is on the bracket somewhere and then it was the louisville game where we won the biggest championship um other than that every team that played was not ranked they had kind of an iffy non-conference schedule um the big east sent eight teams to the dance that year but like the seeds were just kind of okay um in 09 the big east had three one seeds like and then three of the number one seeds and then they had two three seeds i mean the big east had seven teams in the 09 tournament all of them were six seeds or better it was just a hard conference that year and the Marquette game was the Wallace hitting three at the end of regulation. It was, yeah. And then we won in overtime, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think yep. though, right? If you know, if the second half and Raleigh doesn't happen and they lose to Kansas in the Elite Eight, we don't really look at the season as being overrated. It kind of just. Funny. Was... I, I kind of think they were going to lose to Kansas in the Elite Eight too. So I mean, it kind of that would have been their seed, well, and we would have had Wisconsin first. Yeah, yeah but Wisconsin, the fact that Davidson just easily dispatched of them, I don't, I don't. I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna disrespect the Badgers right there. Yeah. At my own risk. Yeah, that won't come back. Yeah, and that, like that right there is a segue. It's a very nice <laughs> right. segue. Yeah. Speaking of disrespecting the Badgers. Let's do it. <laughs> it says here that Wisconsin seventy three, Georgetown fifty seven. Yeah, so what's what's interesting about these two, this is a seven ten matchup in the sadness bracket and um it's Wisconsin beating us 73-57 in 2016, uh, and then Duke beating us uh, 86-84 in 2015. These games were on the same date, November 22nd, just one year apart, and just very different types of games, very different types of games. So the Wisconsin game was the second day in, in the Maui Invitational, right after we had destroyed uh, Oregon, uh, or I shouldn't say destroyed them. It turned out to be a close game, but uh, they were up big. ended up winning. And, and that was an Oregon team that ended up going to the final four. So it was an impressive win. Uh, and then Wisconsin just comes out and absolutely smashes us. And this is, this is one of those games where this is when you, people who weren't paying attention to the program, longtime Georgetown fans who, Maybe they had just woke up and saw the Oregon game and were impressed. They saw this and then our blowout loss to Oklahoma State, and then they were like, maybe it's time for a change. The rebounding is what stood out in that Wisconsin loss. They out-rebounded us 50-21, to including 20-1 to on the offensive glass. 
Now that this Wisconsin team had a lot of talented guys, Nigel Hayes, Ethan Happ, Bronson Koenig, they were very good. They were great defensively, but we just looked completely out of sorts. Like we just, we did not know how to handle this team. Now, if you look back at the box score and the play-by-play, this game was a lot closer than you may remember, but I just remember it was it was the way they beat us. They would miss shots and just get offensive rebounds, and Jay Billis would make a snarky comment, and you know we were all just wondering what was going on. How could we not? How could we possibly not box out? That's the Wisconsin loss. It was brutal, and the very the very next day we just got smoked by Oklahoma State. The year before in November is when we played Duke at Madison Square Garden, and we looked great. Uh, this was the the fifteen sixteen season where again this this was just a couple weeks after we had lost to Radford and Maryland, but we thought that team could be a really good team, like we said before d s r Copeland Derrickson govan bradley hayes uh l j peak we had, we had a lot of guys who could play on that team uh we were up five at the half this is the one that where Caleb Johnson hit a hit a long three at the end of the first half. And in the second half, Duke went on a run, and uh, they there were there were a whole lot of Grayson Allen theatrics. He had a hell of a game, but he also this is a game where he was doing some of his tripping and whining and throwing people into stanchions, and you know he ended up scoring 32 points. Uh, we mounted a furious comeback in the last minute. Isaac Copeland hit two threes to cut the deficit to two with seven seconds to go. Duke missed a whole lot of free throws down the stretch. And then we had the ball down two with under five seconds to go. Isaac Copeland has a chance to hit a game-winning three at the buzzer and give us a win against Duke at the Garden and just doesn't go in. We lose that one by two and the rest of the season ends up being a disaster. I think, I think that, with that loss, we started the season. It was, I guess, one and four, two and four, and from there on out, is we were just playing catch up. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I didn't realize they were both on the same day. Um, the thing, the thing that stood out to, other than the rebounding, I knew that we had been out rebounding. I did not know it was that bad in the Wisconsin game. Um, the other thing that stood out to me looking at the box score, and this is, I think, the lasting impact of this game, uh, the Wisconsin game. Uh, let, me, let me give you Isaac Copeland's stat line for this game. I uh, played 17 minutes. I believe he started. 17 minutes, uh, 0 for 5 from the field. No rebounds, one assist, and one turnover. Um, the following day against Oklahoma State, he didn't start. He played three minutes, and then that was the end of Isaac Copeland at Georgetown. Um, so the Wisconsin game was Isaac Copeland in real time, probably making the decision that this is not for me and heading off to Nebraska. Um, so, you know, for, for those of you very new to Hoya fandom who saw the UNC Greensboro game in the fallout, we've been here before. There's always a previous case with Georgetown, right? Um, yeah, that game was pretty brutal. Um, the Duke game, you know, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about this. Why do you think it is that, over the years, Georgetown has always seemed to play Duke fairly well. Even the losses, like are, are losses like this, where it's either cl- it's really close, or we lead for a while, or there's some kind of referee chicanery that causes us to lose. Like, why do you think we play Duke so well? Well, particularly 
in this era, and these are this is these are JT three games. Uh, Coach K never played zone against Georgetown, and yep. if JT three could coach in a no zone league, <laughs> the results would be pretty good, right? And it was kind of you know K, you know some of these coaches have the philosophy of look, we don't practice it; it's a waste of time. Like I'm not going to bring it out against this team, and he he stuck to that. And I think mean, you know his record. What what's what's the record? Two and three versus. I think uh, they were they went two and three versus Duke when JT three was a coach. It uh, could be right. It sounds right. Yeah. They split the two game. They they split the four game series and they lost the neutral event. Yeah. So I think that's probably the biggest thing. Does that doesn't explain the recent loss up in Madison Square Garden? But I think for the JT three time, I think that's a big way to describe. What happened? It's probably completely, right. Completely agree. And, and and I thought we were always we, we were the tougher team in a lot of those in a lot of those games. But yeah, we just we we abused those teams with our man to man defense. And then they, I think Coach K got smart after he he coached alongside Jimmy Beheim and he started incorporating some two three principles when they would play us. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. that. You bringing up Isaac Copeland, that's definitely the thing I was going to focus on as well. We did, we, you know, he, he did play in the next game against um, Oklahoma State. He didn't start, and then he missed a couple games, and he played against Elon, didn't start, and that was it for him. A crazy moment, there was a Georgetown media availability. I think it was right before... I think it was right before they were going to go down to Miami and play LaSalle and they canceled it. But what they offered was a call. And I was like, you know, yeah, I'd like to get some quotes. Let's, let's have a call. And, you know, I didn't get the call when I, when I, when I thought I'm rolling into a McDonald's drive-through and I get an unknown number, and I'm like, well, I have to answer. Normally, my instincts would be not to answer. I'm like, I have to answer. And it's JT3, so I, luckily I'd pulled over. I wasn't ordering a number six super size or whatever. <laughs> and and all I wanted to talk about was how important it was going to be to have Isaac Copeland back, a healthy Isaac Copeland. And that's all we talked about. And then he transferred, like, the next day. <laughs> Terrific. Terrific. How was the McDonald's? I don't know. It probably felt good in the moment and then like 10 minutes later, terrible. But That's like Georgetown basketball. Yeah. Well, sometimes in the moment it doesn't feel great either. But yeah. I just remember that. And, you know, I can't remember. I don't have all my notes in front of me from, you know, from a couple of years ago. But I, I guess the story when we got back, or not we, but when they got back from Maui was that Copeland was, you know, hurt. And I think that's what he said when he transferred, right? I think he had a back problem. So he got that year back. He only played seven games that season. He ended up getting the whole season back. But, yeah, that was the – you know, we talked about it a second ago. This is the class. Like, you can't afford to miss on Paul White and Copeland, you know, and not have a point guard. You know, the ands kept just building up. So, I'm picking Wisconsin just because the losses to Duke, like how we just said, you know, they're close. Or, you know, John, you guys both just said, you know, you can you can afford to lose to Duke. I know you can't when your season starts out when the you know the record was so bad to start, but that's there's nothing wrong. But when you lose the way that, like you said, Howie Jay, Jay Billis just talked about 
you know, oh, Georgetown came to a rock fight and they weren't ready and whatever other crap he said. It was embarrassing when you think of Georgetown's brand is built on being tougher than you to just get completely out toughed. Yeah, it was a it was a seminal loss, I think, in the in the J two three era for for sure. I would also go with Wisconsin too. I mean, we we weren't Duke was number five in the country. We were right. one in we we were one and two coming into this game. We had right. no business keeping it close, and we lost by two. It was sad because we had a chance to win, and because it was just painful watching Grayson Allen score thirty two points and hitting five out of six threes and you know, going to the line time after time. I also think I just took another look that the, this is another example of where the foul right started to, you know, get at us. LJ peak fouled out in only 23 minutes. Uh, Caleb Johnson fouled out in only 22 minutes. Jesse Govan had three fouls in 17 minutes. Trey morning, who was always foul prone had four fouls in 14 minutes. It was just painful. Uh, yeah. but not as painful as that Wisconsin loss, which was, you know, I mean, that, that kind of, uh, defined who we were for some period of time. Who they still are, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Three for three. I, I picked the Wisconsin loss as well. Um, I'd be remiss to put a little bow on this story to not mention, um, the, another random moment in Georgetown history, the quickly deleted Isaac Copeland daddy's boy subtweet at JT3 later that year. Why? Well, I'm not sure I, that even made my uh, radar. No, because he deleted it real quick. Uh, this was, it would have had to have been later in the same year because JT3 was still around. But uh, I was right after some kind of bad Georgetown loss. I can't remember which specific game, but it was one of the ones later that year. And, Isaac put up a tweet that was basically like, like LOL daddy's boy or something like that it was very clearly a subtweet of JT three. And it lasted about five minutes before he deleted it, but uh, people picked up on it. So I'm guessing there was some bad blood there. Well, you know what, since I always seem to do it in JT three's defense, Isaac Copeland ended up at Nebraska and did not exactly fulfill his five star, um, you know, yeah. what was supposed to be Isaac Copeland, right? I don't think JT3 was holding him back. JT3 happened to yeah. get a recruit that wasn't as good as he was supposed to be. Yeah, sometimes things just don't work out in a particular situation. It doesn't have to be anybody's fault. But, yeah, I get a feeling there was it, 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 there was some animosity, not animosity maybe, but just it wasn't a good situation. Just leave it at that. Oh, well. Well, since we're just flying by here, do we want to include the Notre Dame games? Let's do it. <laughs> okay, so, so we have a seven we have a seven ten matchup. This is very Irish centric. Georgetown defeating the Irish in two thousand six. This is a big double overtime win just after the program changing or I'd say program resetting win versus Duke, the newly ranked Hoyas. And then the 10 seed is Georgetown just strangling the 2012 Irish. It's a 59 to 41 final. And I believe that was maybe Notre Dame's worst output until UVA recently has been just, you know, making teams do ungodly things. And I want to say that they've scored less against UVA, but I believe this is one of their, one of their worst outputs offensively as a program. Yeah, this, this is uh, 
this matchup definitely uh, goes against some of the bracket seeding principles uh, facing a common opponent uh, here. <laughs> but yeah, th- these were these were very these these were very different periods in Georgetown in the program's history. Very different players, uh, but both really nice, really nice program wins. As you said, yeah. let's start with the one in 2006. So this was not the 06-07 team. This was the 05-06 team uh, when when Hibbert Green and Wallace were only sophomores. So it's the season that, that ended getting to the Sweet 16 and beating Ohio State, but falling short against Florida in the tournament. Notre Dame had given us problems for a long time. We had this was uh, we seemingly played against them in overtime at least once per season, and in this particular game in 2006, we were up 15 early in the first half. We were up eight at halftime. We allowed Notre Dame to come all the way back, and it's uh, it, it's kind of remembered for the way it ended at the end of regulation when we were up by four and Bowman was called for a foul when Colin Falls threw his leg out on something that would no longer be called a foul. In fact, he'd be whistled for a flop these days. But he hit a three at the end of regulation, made the ensuing free throw. We went to overtime. It was back and forth both ways. Uh, and, and eventually there were just two solid performances by, uh, I think it was Daryl Owens who had a big game that day. Yeah, Owens had 18 points, five rebounds. Uh, hit three big threes and uh and and otherwise we just we were really well-rounded jeff green had 12 points seven rebounds six assists roy hibbert had 18 and 13 uh ashanti cook 15 and six assists just a really kind of balanced game uh and and we didn't let up after that big win against against duke so uh just an all-around solid win the game six years later in uh this was 59 to 41 i mean as you said bobby this was so this this was towards the end of february and this might have been i think this was senior day actually yeah it was this was senior night this was yeah. senior night for jason clark and henry sims and so it was meaningful and it was notre dame we were ranked 11th notre dame was ranked 20th it was an important we were we were tied or, or actually we were a, I think we were a game behind the Irish in the standings it was a meaningful late season Big East game and we Jason Clark and Henry Sims played really well and we just completely stymied Notre Dame's offense they this was this was a team with Jack Cooley and Jack Cooley had two points and four fouls in in 25 minutes I asked Barty uh, so was Aaron Gary. it's pretty they, they had they didn't have a single player in double figures. That's how good our defense was. We forget, we sometimes forget how good that like 2011, 12 team was, but uh, it, it was, it was really solid. And our leading scorer, shockingly enough, was a guy named Greg Whittington who had 15 points in yeah. 24 minutes. This was his, his freshman year. Gregors. Yeah. So there you go. Actually, I'd forgotten Notre Dame was pretty decent that year. Um, yeah, we were right around them for uh, for seeding at that point. Um, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of surprised at myself that I'm going to vote against two games from the 11-12 team, which is my 
probably my favorite um, in one night, but I picked the other game. Um, I watched the, the 06 game, um, so three days after the Duke game. Um, really important to probably to win that game. I, I don't really necessarily believe in momentum or like trap games or whatever, but it says a lot about that team that off of the high of beating Duke in that particular game in January of 06, that they went out and won the next spot. Um, in particular, this was not an easy one playing at Notre Dame. Really weird double overtime game with kind of a quirky, you know, with the Colin Falls thing. Um, I'm pretty positive I watched this one on campus. I was I was down the road at grad school, and my wife was in her senior year at Georgetown. I would say probably in terms of student interest in the team at this point, this is probably this would have probably been like the high point in student interest in the team since like the 2001 Sweet 16. Like, you know, leading up to the Duke game, for the Duke game to happen, you know, this is the game right after that when, oh, crap, everybody's paying attention. We have a good basketball team again. Um, so it was a really good – I remember watching it. I think it was in the Village C Lounge, actually. This is pre-New South Lounge days. But, like, really good atmosphere. Like, everybody really interested. It was a really good game. You know, it really, it really kind of confirmed that this team was, was really something. Always good to beat Notre Dame. I kind of missed that rivalry. Yep. Yeah, um, I'd love to disagree with you guys, but based on Georgetown escaping South Florida, narrowly, I believe, uh, I'm looking here, uh, 50-47, I knew it was something ridiculous like that. So I remember when I walked out of the arena that night thinking, oh, God, Duke's coming to town. Like, now, you know, it's on CBS. (laughs) You know, I'd rather them just be sort of a problem that no one cares about. Now they're going to shine a light on it. So now the light's there. They're ranked for the first time since 2001. This is their first ranking, I believe, since 2001. Yeah. Yeah. So I think to make sure that they don't immediately leave the rankings to win a game that you had almost won earlier and to pull it out, I think, was pretty big. And just like John says, I have the same affinity towards that 2011-12 season so it's a bummer to pick against them uh, as you know, how is, as you mentioned, it is Greg Winnington's best, well, at least his best scoring game as a freshman to where all of a sudden you're starting to think, wait, Winnington's a thing, you, you know, because Georgetown was four for 11 from three in that game. Winnington was three, three for three. Yeah. 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 So like I said, I had sat that season by a couple scouts that told me, that they were more interested in Winnington early on than Porter. And, you know, at that time, it's like, wow, really? And then you start to see glimpses of it, and you're like, okay, I understand. Um, Unfortunately, it wasn't all there for Greg, but this was one of the first times where he showed that glimpse. So good matchup, but I am going to agree. It was way more important for that Georgetown team to build on that momentum. And the way the 2006-05 six season went there was a stretch at the end of the so they beat usc or usf and duke and notre dame as part of a seven game winning streak but like the season before they lost three straight towards the end to where you're thinking is this really going to happen again now obviously they recovered and everybody forgets that even happened because they made the sweet 16 and gave florida all they could handle but you know I, i think that was just such an important time to just keep building off what Georgetown had been missing for, you know, five or six years there, which was consistency 
and you know just being relevant again i know a lot of people don't care about rankings and they say i don't care about the ranking and that's that's true for a little bit but you know the amount of coverage you get and just being on the bottom scroll and just sort of mattering by being in that top 25 poll i think i might value it more than other people do so i'm going to value that again in this matchup you know so I think I ultimately went with the 2012 win. I hate that that this is a matchup. Uh, it's just because if only I, you could have done I, something I'm, about it. I, I could have. <laughs> I'm always I'm always partial to wins against Notre Dame, and so it's it's hard to favor one over the other. I, but I, I think for me, what wins out is that 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 2011-12 Georgetown team. I don't think people thought was going to be anything special, and. And they were really, really good. The year that Henry yeah. Sims had was yeah. incredible. And to see Otto and Greg start emerging as the players they became was really special. And this was for this to be senior night, guys like it's hard to root against, or it's not root against. It's hard not to really feel great about guys like Jason Clark and Henry Sims. Uh, and plus, just the way we spanked them defensively was absolutely incredible. So, I, for, for me, that wins out barely, although I acknowledge that 2006 win at the time was uh, was uh, incredible. Another great matchup. Yep. So, bad matchups. This next one that we're going to talk about is really a really, really competitive 4-13 game. I'm having a hard time with it. Hopefully you guys can convince me one way or the other. <sighs> The four seed, DePaul beats Georgetown. I think it's the first regular season loss to DePaul. This is the 2016-2017 season. This is the last JT3 season. It's a heartbreaking last second. Akoya Gao, probably the thing he'll be most known for is that foul. And then it's matched up against 13 seed, which right now it's looking like a program-defining loss. Um UNC Greensboro knocks off Georgetown after that, after one of those trips to the Garden to play Duke. Um, this is the last game as we know it, as far as Akinjo and LeBlanc and eventually Gardner and Alexander. Yeah, I, I hate these games. Uh, I was I was at the, the DePaul game, but not the Greensboro game. The this this I think was probably the game that that cemented uh, what was to come for, for JT three. I think it, you know, again, like you said, we lost, we lost this game by two on, on a foul with 0.2 seconds to go and Billy Garrett hitting, hitting two free throws at the end. We were, we were winning most of this game and it was a home game against DePaul. And, you know, there have been a couple of decent DePaul teams, just a couple, a couple of decent DePaul teams in the last, <laughs> 15 years this was not not one of them this was a DePaul team that had lost 10 games in a row before they came into our gym and beat us this was the first time that DePaul had beaten us uh, since they joined the new Big East and this like I said before when you when you take this loss and the very next home game was home against Villanova you know, you see that as a program, we're a lot closer to the dregs of the conference than the top of the conference. Uh, just the the way we lost this, I think, you know, the crowd was just really just trying to will the team to a win because you just didn't want to see this unravel the way it did. 
Uh, I was also, I mean, we're, we're on the same page here, but I, I was, I was one of the people who did not want to see JT three lose his job. And I just didn't want the bad vibes to continue and losing to DePaul at home. You got the sense that, it, that, that might be it. We were up by 14 points in this game and we lost. We don't under JT three. How many times did that happen where we would blow a double digit lead like that? Literally it, it, it's happened probably five times in the entire JT3 era. And you can remember each and every one of them because it happens so infrequently. But you remember the loss to Syracuse at the Garden. You remember the loss to Davidson in the tournament. And they're painful. This was 14 points, and 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 we lost to DePaul. So it was bad. The, the next one, the Greensboro loss in November of 2019. So just putting aside the fact that, you know, we had – four players leave shortly after this game and, and Akinjo and LeBlanc leaving immediately after this game. This this game was not a game we should have lost. And I know that UNC Greensboro was a pretty decent team. They went on to have a pretty good season. But the fact that we lost this game, we had zero offensive coherence. Yeah, and and yet we were we were winning almost all of this game Greensboro all of a sudden takes a lead midway through the second half uh not even midway through with five or six minutes to go and then we didn't have an answer this was also the game where you know talk about counterfactuals Omer year seven missed a go-ahead dunk in the final minute and uh you know and then Greensboro gets a couple of offensive rebounds and in the last minute off of missed free throws to kind of cement the win uh, if you're at seven makes that dunk and we take the lead and end up winning this game, you kind of wonder if things might've turned out differently the rest of the season. Uh, James Akinjo, this was his last game with the program and he kind of repeatedly like waved off different play calls and ended up four for 15 for the game. And just, we looked completely out of sorts. Yeah. Real quick. Akinjo, Yurt7, and McClung combined to go 10 for 37. Right? Like UNC that, Greensboro. <laughs> UNC Greensboro only had to score 65 points to beat Georgetown. I wouldn't say Georgetown necessarily made them work for this W, right? right. And, you know, this is another game where Josh LeBlanc, you know, barely plays. I think afterwards, I believe that, you know, the question kept, I'm not even sure who asked it. Maybe it might've been me. I, I asked it at least once last season, but you know, what does Josh need to do to get back in the lineup to getting back to the player that was all big East freshman and Ewing was, you know, now that, now that we know what we know, maybe that was involved, but he was just, you know, he was like, look at it, look at his plus minus. And you're like, wow, I don't think I've ever heard him say that. Like, I remember walking back in the media room and being like, that's kind of harsh towards LeBlanc. I hadn't really – usually he's more of a – he protects the guys. And then he said, I think that was what – he kept repeating through the first couple of games, we need to be more more we than me. And this was another one of those games. So I think the loss to DePaul is probably worse. and. Just because, like you said, all of a sudden it's like, that's who we're keeping company with. This is who we are. We're DePaul. 
Because at that point, you you'd know, still, you you know, you were you were you were still better than St. John's and DePaul, right, John? Yeah. The thing about that DePaul game is, as much as like, I mean, Howie's point is taken that we don't, you know, we didn't blow double-digit leads in the JT3 era. I, I very vividly remember being at this game, and probably not when we were up 14, but certainly into the last five minutes or so of that game, I could not have been more confident that they were going to blow that game. I mean, it's just it's where we were as a team. We spent the entire season. There were lots of games, you know, from the Maryland game at the start of that year to the St. John's game around this time, the Seton Hall game around this time, where they were close games. And just this team's thing was they would always find a way to lose them. And it was sort of escalating stupidity in how they lost them, right? Fouling a guy on a drive with 0.2 seconds left, you know, that, that's a bad way to lose, and it's DePaul. John, um, John, yeah. T- take it back a couple seconds. So Georgetown gets the ball. Their last possession starts with 29 seconds, and they don't get the last shot. Oh, no. Was this, was this the one that had – Was did Jesse shoot the air ball yeah. in this game? Yeah, oh. yeah. Yep. Yeah, so, like – the worst. The oh, worst you know you what? Can... You know what? I, I, I don't want to admit. I, maybe I probably shouldn't admit this on the podcast at the game. I laughed when that happened. Like, okay. It was more well, like a like, oh my gosh, of course, of course, but, we just did that. But I laughed but at it. The worst that should happen after that timeout is you have five more minutes of basketball. Like that's the yeah. worst. Not that you foul someone with point two. Yeah. Well, but you're you're. What about the play before that? So right, we had the ball with 29 seconds left, and you know we ended up shooting an air ball and giving him the ball on the win. The the play just before that, we were up by two with the ball with, uh, you know I guess it was 40 seconds to go, and the uh, Paul ends up stealing it from us and getting a fast break layup to tie the game. Yeah, I mean, Jesse, up by two with a... the ball with 40 seconds to go at home, you really don't expect to lose. But well, apparently John did. But yeah, Je- Jesse's credited with a with a turnover with 33 seconds. Yeah, you know, as much as I think, you know, until the the, the wounds aren't as fresh, we're still always going to associate that Greensboro game with being the last game before all the departures started happening and the program went through some pretty significant turmoil. And I'm not trying to minimize it by just kind of calling it pretty significant turmoil. But right. for me, I mean, I, I would vote for the Paul game, you know, the actual game itself, the Greensboro game, I don't think had any impact. All those four departures for the various reasons they happened, were going to happen regardless yeah. of how that game turned out. I knew you guys think, were going to talk me out of this. I knew it. I, I think, I think that the, the fact that the Greensboro game turned out the way it did was illustrative of the reason why some of the players did leave. Um, but the win or lose, that, that the season, the departures proceeded, they would have. But that's, and I knew that you guys would be, and that that's definitely the more, the more grounded take to be like, look, these guys were like, based on what we know, what happened, they were always going to leave. But based on what we know, what happened, you know, why didn't they leave before the season started? It would have been smarter. You know, they would have had the whole, they, they, you know, they get the whole season, you know, they, they don't, they don't waste seven games. Um, so I don't know. And, and adding, adding misery to the Greensboro loss. And now I'm really kind of reaching, but because in my opinion, it's going to be hard for Ewing to recover from this is one of the biggest losses and one of the biggest, one of the most, to me, one of the, one of the best parts of the Ewing 
um, era so far was getting Terrence Williams. And so you lose the four guys that were currently there and you lose your top 50 homegrown recruit all in the matter of like a week or two. Yeah. I guess we'll never know yeah, if and, those two are linked, but yeah. And last year was supposed to be the season that, you know, we were on the upswing again. I mean, last year was supposed right. to be our, you know, 2006 uh, part de. Yeah. And I mean, looking at what they had, you know, I have full confidence, and based on what the kid that stayed in school accomplished, I have, you know, I have full confidence that this team would have found a way to be eligible for the NCAA tournament. Um, yep. You know, that obviously didn't happen, but I have, you know, I think it's, I'd, it, you know, it'd be hard to try and convince me that it wouldn't have worked if everyone stays, right? Like, this was, you know, a, this was, this was a big thing. But yes, in that moment, that the Paul loss was just like, this is this is this is this is really going bad. Yeah, so I think if I think if you if if you don't think if 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 your reaction is the way you felt immediately after the loss and not two days after the loss, yeah, I think yeah. DePaul easily DePaul easily wins this one. But you know, it, you think about other things when you think about Greensboro. You know, just <laughs> there's just fun topics to you know think about during a pandemic. Speaking of Greensboro, yeah. though. If you remember the Jimmy Bayham comments about how the ACC tournament should never be played in Greensboro and the Greensboro uh, like residents starting erupt started erupting and there was this backlash against Bayheim. This was probably four or five years ago, and yeah. they were selling shirts that said Greensboro against Bayheim, and I still own one of those and I wear it occasionally, <laughs> and no one understands what it means. So the ACC just because uh, the ACC tournament was in the, f- the first part of the ACC tournament was in Greensboro yes. this year, and of course it got canceled. The ACC just re-upped; they're going to put the tournament back in Greensville at the next open year in the rotation to give them a do-over. It's actually I didn't realize the ACC tournament was going to be at Cap One this year, this coming season, if there is one. Well, hopefully it'll be better attended than the Atlantic Ten tournament was last year, two years ago, which was pretty. I felt I felt kind of bad mm-hmm. for it. Guys, we have one game left. Can we? And... So, I think what the, for me, what this comes down to this is so this is the 5 12, the Utah game from the 2015 tournament, and the last time we played at the Carrier Dome. Can we just skip ahead to the last possession of the Syracuse game? Like, I think I, I think I like Jake and Mosley too much to do that. I, 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 I forgot until. We put this game on the list for today. How angry I was at the end of this game because of this. No. Do we want well, to? Do we want to go over? Do we want to go over the full recap of this, or can we just talk about this last possession? Well, I think we need to at least set the stage. So this is okay. one of those one of those tricky five twelve matchups. Five seed, and you know we're sticking with the sadness. It's been the theme here today. The five seed is Utah defeating the Hoyas seventy five sixty four. In the second round of the 2015 tournament, this is out in Portland. And then the 12 seed is Syracuse beating Georgetown 72-71 in the 2018-19 season. So this is the second straight season Patrick Ewing lost 
to the to Jim Beheim and the Orange after having double digit advantages. I hate I hate these games so much. I hate this matchup so much. I I don't even remember who I ended up picking. It it was <laughs> it was it was probably Utah, but the, the these games are memorable and devastating for very different reasons. The anytime anytime you lose a game and that ends your season, it's it's sad. Uh, but this one in particular, this this team, this was Tyler Adams and Jabril and and Hopkins and you know it, it, this was this was a fun team to root for, and this was the year if you were you know as as much of a JT3 supporter as I was, tired of all of the you know the the nonsense about losing to underseeded teams and. This was the year to exercise the demons. We had just come off of that nice little win against Eastern Washington after listening to all of the trash talking from the Eastern Washington coach. And we were facing a really good Utah team. This this was a classic four five matchup. We could have been the five seed and it it was it was back and forth. Keep in mind the winner of this game would go on to face Duke. And it just kind of felt like remember the first five minutes of this game we were up by 11 points. LJ Peak was playing as well as he had played all year. I think this was maybe it was the beginning of the season is when he had that really nice beginning, uh, you know, game against Kansas and and he just, I, or well, actually I think it was the first his first game as a Georgetown Hoya. He you know made his first like you know several shots in a row and had yeah. had a solid outing. This, this was. This was, you know, LJ Peak playing peak basketball, and he he was great. And we race out to this 11-point lead, and you're like, we look good. We look fun. We're going to win this game. The second half, things just – it was back and forth and back and forth. Utah shot 32 free throws. Uh, it was close until the last couple of minutes. There were a How many free throws did the Hoyas shoot, Howie? How many? Nine. 32 to nine. God. Yep. But also, the, the, it was nothing new for us. I mean, the the, the foul rate and the, the free throw discrepancy kind of came to define the last couple of years of the JT3 era. And, and this was one of those games that where it stood out. But yeah, 32 to nine. It just, I, you just felt bad losing this game. Utah might have been the better team, but I just wanted us to exercise the demons and finally get back to a sweet 16. I wanted it for the team. I wanted it for the seniors. I wanted it for JT three. I wanted to play Duke again. I didn't want our season to end. Uh, so Utah takes this one for me, but God, that loss to Syracuse was, was awful. I, you know, especially the year after blowing a double digit, you know, uh, double, double digit lead home against Syracuse to basically do the same thing on the road. I, Syracuse Syracuse beat us 72 to 71. Syracuse scored 50 points in the second half. 50 points and we still should have won the game. This was that ridiculous Jesse Govan go ahead three-pointer with a minute to go uh followed by, you know, what John is about to get to us uh, fumbling away the last possession and 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 Tyus Battle hitting a game-winning shot to give him a one-point win at the dome. Keep in mind also 
the Tyus battle shot wasn't an easy shot, and he hit it with nope. two seconds left to 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 give him. It was he was pretty decently guarded. It wasn't the shot you would want anyone to take, but he scored 21 points to his credit in the second half. He stepped up and hit the shot. It was a tough shot. It went in, and it was absolutely terrible. Uh, all right, here we go. So I, I'd forgotten how, how pissed off I was at the end of this game. So, so the way this game ends, you know, Tyus Battle hits the shot, or Battle's shot was you know, two seconds to go. Win by one. Our previous possession. So we get, you know, in the final minute, Syracuse has the ball. We get a stop. The live ball stop. Um, 71 to 70, we're ahead. Um, at this point in the game, we have one timeout left. And we are in the double bonus. The lineup on the court, I believe on the possession that we got the stop on, we were playing the 2-3 zone, I'm pretty sure. The lineup we had on the court was Jagan, Javon Blair, Greg Malinowski, Josh LeBlanc, and Jesse Govan. It's probably a defensive-tinged lineup. It's got some length if you're playing a 2-3 zone, right? We don't, we bring the ball up court, we do not call a timeout. The difference yep. between shot clock and game clock is about six seconds. So we can hold the ball pretty late. Syracuse has a timeout if the possession changes. But you can, if you are really committed to it and you're playing smart, you can work the ball down where Syracuse is going to potentially get a defensive rebound with like six seconds to go and have to call timeout and set something up. Um, if that. That's what we, happens. We... Ewing has James Akinjo and Mac McClung at the scorer's table while the mm-hmm. offensive possession is going on. We dribble the ball around at the perimeter for a while. Jesse sets the screen for Jagan, who dribbles the ball into double-team traffic. He picks the ball up, like, around the free-throw line. There's no way he's ever going to pass it. He commits a, a, an offensive foul. It's not even close, right? He had really no plan once he got going. Um, and he does it with 10.6 seconds left. So you manage somehow to waste about five seconds worth of the shot clock difference and give a team with a dead ball plenty of time to set something comfortable up. And they weren't exactly in a hurry when, when they hit that shot either to win the game. They had a time to leisurely bring the ball up the court. What I don't get to this day is beyond just why you wouldn't call a timeout. Why did you put Akinjo and McClung at the scores table? If you thought by putting up at the scores table is you're going to bring them in, how are you going to get a stop? How are you going to get a stop clock? You either have to actually call a timeout, or Syracuse has to foul us, which is going to end the possession anyway, and we're going to be back on defense. And you're going to put those guys in who aren't going to be in for defensive purpose. What was he doing with them at the scores table, and not calling timeout? It never made any sense. Have to call a timeout. Have to call a timeout. Like, it's clear that he must have had some thought that, oh, Akinjo and McClung should probably be in this game, right? They're the guys who can create offense. One of them is the point guard. The other one is the guy who creates offense. Why bring them to the scorer's table if you're not trying to get them in the game? If you don't call timeouts, they're never going to get into the game on offense. It is an unbelievable coaching part. Well, it's almost like because to that point, Syracuse already scored 48 points in the half. Maybe he just you know, figured they were going to score. <laughs> so when Syracuse scored and, or if there was a foul or whatever, he was going to put them in. I agree. I, and I'm sure that's not what he was thinking, but what else could you possibly think he was thinking except that? Because it does make no sense to have them there. And I mean, it's like, I feel like 
After four years, I feel really terrible for Jagan Mosley because so many times in his career, he was put in positions where like, he, like, he should not have been the guy handling the ball in that situation. Like He shouldn't have been the guy in the Maryland game the previous year as a freshman to try to go coast to coast. He yeah. shouldn't have been in so many cases guarding the other team's best player at the end of this season, right? He shouldn't have been guarding Marcus Howard. He should have been guarding, forget who it was on Xavier, who hit the three-pointer, right? You know, he, he was constantly being put in these positions where, like, he just, like, not that it was too much for him, but, like, I mean, it says something about the team that's, like, you know, you never could find the right person for certain tasks, right? It just, it bothers me. I don't, I don't like, I'm not, not mad at Jagan for committing that, the That covers foul. two coaches, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. So two I just, two coaches felt that this kid needed to be in there, you know, and you're right. He got put into a lot of bad spots because the Georgetown overall talent level wasn't really there. And he kind of had to do maybe more than he was supposed to. But that's how, you know, we started this. And I said, I didn't, I didn't want to start with that because I like, I like Jagan too much, but just I know. the math. I remember. So I was, I remember watching that game. And I think my, I just kept pacing around saying, if they had just literally taken a shot clock violation, Syracuse wouldn't have been able to do what they did. If, you know? Craig, Escherich, if, Craig, if Craig Escherich had done this, because we always have to end with Escherich, if Craig yeah. Escherich had employed the same strategy Bayheim was in that possession, we would have roasted Escherich for not fouling. Yeah. Like, what do you mean you're going to let them kill the clock until six seconds are left? And Yeah, I mean, and this is – this has been a theme, right? This has been a couple games where when you look at the last possession, if they had managed it better, it would have been hard to make this list of these losses because mathematically you couldn't have got there. Yeah. This is, you know, I just want to say about the, this loss to Syracuse, this was also not to be overlooked. This is one of Jesse's better games of his career, 22 points, 12 rebounds, four assists. And this was also with, a little over a minute to go, we were down one, uh, or a minute and a half to go, we were down one. He hits a jumper to give us a one-point lead. Battle comes back and drills a three uh, with just over a minute left. And then Govan comes right back and hits a three from the top of the, th- top of the key to give us a one-point lead. It, it, was, it was really beautiful back and forth watching Govan versus Battle. But the idea that McClung and Akinjo were not in the game at the end was – it was it was pretty shameful. And it's all, it's how about always, this? Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I, I, you know, putting aside the fact that Akinjo is the point guard, McClung is a guy who can create his own shot. Both of them are excellent free throw shooters. So if Syracuse decides to foul or if they, you know, they're both pretty good at drawing fouls too. So if they get to the line, they'll probably hit their free throws. I, you know, and and putting aside the fact that Jagan and Javon, especially earlier in their careers, uh, had ball handling issues. In that particular game, Javon Blair had taken eight shots in the game. All of them were threes, and he made one of them. What was he doing in the game, <laughs> you know, at, at the end of regulation? It just it didn't make sense for him to be on the floor. Well, but, you know. And I mean, look at look at Jagan's line. Twenty four minutes, didn't attempt no a point. shot. You know, yeah, well, no yeah, point. he didn't score, and he he didn't you know he didn't even take a shot. I I felt at the end of that game, 
and I did not watch a highlight before we're speaking about it. I I felt like they thought they were going to get fouled, right? It seemed like the players on the court were expecting to be fouled. And when they weren't, there was sort of nowhere to go, which makes not calling timeout even more maddening. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's almost, yeah. Like you sort of, it's sort of deer in the head. You don't want to use the phrase deer in the headlights, but sometimes it kind of feels like that's what happens. And there was, there was no one else to, there was, I mean, look, what are your options there? We just said Blair took eight shots. They were all threes. He was a Malinowski shooter is the guy Mal- Malinowski who, you know, isn't the best at creating his own shot, but yeah. he had taken three shots. They were all threes and he made all three of them. Right. So, and you know, Govan wasn't going to, you know, drive to the basket on, on his own. LeBlanc was a limited. He was setting the screen player, anyway. Especially. What's Jesse that? was setting the screen. He was Jesse was setting the screen on the right, play. He was right, way out, right, like right. way past the three point line. I mean, and your, your and Jagan was driving really, on Blair's side of the court. It was right. I mean, it was really Jagan driving to the basket and kicking it out to Blair or Malinowski or Govan for, for a three. I mean, that that was the the, the best that was going to come out of that lineup. Right, and you know, you I could be convinced that you don't need both Akinjo and McClung in the game at that point, but you absolutely need one of them I mean, you, I mean you know absolutely and just because I want to say at least one thing about the Utah Georgetown loss I feel like and most NCAA tournament losses really kind of you know just stick with you you know forever right because that's like you said how it's, it's the last loss of the season but I think because the fact that they didn't lose to Eastern Washington that sort of seemed like the standard it was sort of like, well, look. And for a second there, it was looking like Eastern Washington, you know, there was there were some anxious moments in the first half. But I think because they got over that hurdle, this loss, while, you know, it was a close game in the final four minutes, um, like you mentioned, Georgetown raced out to a big lead. I think 21-10, I believe, was the lead they were up on Florida, um, you know, 10 years earlier, I want to say they were up 21-10 against the Gators before they oh. lost that that NCAA tournament game. But of all the of all the, the losses Georgetown had in the NCAA tournament, and who knows when they're when they're ever going to get back, this loss doesn't really hurt my feelings as much as a lot of the other ones do, right? I'm I'm angry about the Syracuse game, but I think I voted for the Utah game just because that's still a legacy is that it's still the last one we've played in the NCAA tournament has been five years. And it's not looking like that's going to change anytime soon. No. How about about the, how about the quote we have included here that how we put in here from, from Jabril, you know, he says, I'm disappointed, but I still have my head high. Surprisingly, I didn't cry or anything, which is hard to believe because those locker rooms are always. And I, I'm not making fun of it; like I get it. But there's usually a lot of a lot of fire, a lot of um, waterfalls. I had a great time. It's been a great experience. The group they have coming back is going to be a special team. Now I know that's something that you're always going to say, but <laughs> when you look back at it, you're like, wow. Yeah, yeah. And then Radford. Yeah. It's going to be um, that those are back-to-back games. Utah and Radford, Jesus. Well, what are you going to do? 
I don't know. Um, this bracket's been fun. I really like it. I did have some other things, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we need to do a four hour podcast. No, we're good. I think we're good. <laughs> so this is so we got the round of thirty two coming up. Round of thirty two is coming up starting tomorrow. Bright and early. Uh kicking things off with the madness bracket. Uh it'll be our win against North Carolina is the one seed, and I don't really think it matters who they play. Yeah, no, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Well, right it'll just be it'll 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 just be great to have some Hoyas teams advancing, even even in the sadness bracket. It'll it'll be really fun for us when we start talking about, you know, the regional games, Sweet Sixteen, Lead Eight. I'm excited for it. What are those? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Well, um, if the few of you that have made it through the longest episode of Kente Corner ever, I want to thank you. And you can find us on Google, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Subscribe. Give us a rating. Give us some feedback. It is always fun to have Howie, who is not on Twitter yet. Maybe one day we will convince him. And John, who is Florida Hoya, I am just my name, just boring Bobby Bancroft. And we'll see you next week. Take care, guys.